Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Broke and Ambitious with me, Frances Keaton. In each episode, I speak to a professional creative about how they got into the arts and how they managed to survive. This is my third episode in lockdown, so it's a virtual episode. And it would be really great if you could rate and review the podcast uh, wherever you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Acast. It will really help the show. And today's guest is Hannah Winter. Hannah is a Hungary-born physical theatre performer, director and clown. She lived in London for six years and, among other things, she has performed theatre at the Southwark Playhouse, toured with Clowns Without Borders, featured in BBC series The Capture and, for several years, she has run the comedy night Lost Cabaret, dedicated to alternative comedy. Here is my conversation with Hannah Winter. So, hello, Hannah. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Joining us from the sunny, beautiful South Germany. Hannah actually uh, had an experience of love in lockdown, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I um, No, I went to Sweden because I had just started seeing someone who was in Sweden and I thought it'd be so nice if we could spend a week together, seven days, and just like see where it goes. So I'd had these tickets for a while and then it sort of turned out while I was in the air on my way to Sweden that Boris Johnson announced lockdown and um, basically I was stuck there for seven weeks, which was really strange. Um, I mean, it was also really fun and Sweden is an amazing place and um, and the people are so nice. They're so nice, but the relationship didn't exactly survive. That's too bad, but I ended up being there for seven weeks, so I can now almost say I've lived in Sweden. Oh my God, one week becomes seven weeks. I don't know how you did it. Me neither. It was, it was quite the adventure. I was like, this might never end. This might just be for the rest of life. Uh, and this is all I've got. Shacked up with a Swede. It must have been hard. But you're through it now and you're in the lovely, beautiful South Germany by a lake. So, all good. That's right. So, Hannah, you are born in Hungary. You've got a beautiful American-sounding accent. What is that about? Well, so my parents lived through communism and... They both hated it. I mean, they really, really despised it. As I'm sure you can imagine, it wasn't uh, the most fun. It was dictatorship. And my dad in his 30s was actually a musician. And he just found it so hard. And I think his whole life dream, and I think this is sort of like a reaction to communist brainwashing, was that we, all the kids, were going to like be sent to live in California or not be sent to live in California but that because that was his dream of freedom wearing jeans and living in California that we were obviously going to want that too Uh, and so at a really young age even though my parents neither of them really spoke English to be honest they speak like a funny sort of like pigeon English kind of thing and um, they just they just thought it would be better for us if we went to an English language school so that we wouldn't have to stay in Hungary because they had suffered so much in their lifetimes. But why American? 
Um, I, that's where most of the teachers were from. There were also ah. teachers from England at the school, and like also Hungarian teachers that spoke English really well. But you know, the American accent is just kind of like overpowering. And also, you'd be at home and then watching like these Hollywood movies. So then that was the accent that you adopted because it was like the one you hear everywhere, mm-hmm. as opposed to, because the British one is ridiculous. Sometimes, but I don't know if for British people this is as obvious. But there's like ten thousand of them, so it's not like an accent. It's like ten thousand accents. So like, which one would it be? Very true, actually. You don't get enough films in a thick Geordie accent, do you? Never. And if you did, we'd all be speaking <laughs> you like really it. Really don't. Could you uh, could you tell the listeners uh, the band that your dad was in? Because it's quite it's quite famous, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's called um, Gemini, but actually you would say Gemini. I mean, it was famous in Hungary and I guess Eastern Europe at the time, uh, but now no longer. It's very cool. You've got a rock and roll papa there. And so you describe yourself as a physical theatre performer, director, and clown, which is incredible. How did you first get into performing? My deep childhood memories. Um, Actually, so this is a good one. Um, I think I was like, my first memory of wanting to be a diva, not a performer, Francis, a diva. It's different. Um, I was about four years old and the bodyguard had come out and my parents bought us the soundtrack or maybe just like a Whitney Houston album, I can't remember. And we had this like, big hi-fi stereo I would like put on these massive headphones and I would like stare at the stereo and listen to music and I was so in love with music at the time and so I would put on I will always love you and I didn't realize it because I had these massive headphones on so they drowned out all other sound but I was like singing along but I didn't because I didn't know that I was doing this I think it sounded something like And so, and so I remember one day I was doing this and I took the headphones on and I could just hear this laughing and I turned around and my entire family were sat behind me. The TV was next to the hi-fi stereo and they were all sat there watching TV, but they could all hear me trying to <laughs> sing inadvertently and they were all laughing at me and I was just stood there like, just you wait, I'll prove you wrong. And I did, of course. That's beautiful. That's a great memory. I remember having a similar experience once on the in the car journey, um, and I had a little portable CD player, and I was listening to Kylie Minogue, and it was a song I'll never forget. It was like a ballad called Tears on My Pillow, and I was really into it, and I was singing along, <laughs> thinking that no one could hear me, but my brother and my mum were in the car. My brother hated the sound of my voice, and must have been moaning and my mum like basically just like was shouting so that my beautiful hearing of the song was interrupted with Francis and then she was like could you give it a rest now and that was so heartbreaking (laughs) (laughs) anyway how did you end up moving to the UK so I'd been at this theatre school in um, Paris and a lot of the people at the school were from the UK so a lot of them sort of went back there afterwards and I was dating someone who was at the school and then he also went back to the UK and I was sort of like 
I could move to Berlin or I could move to London, but he's there and it looks like there's so much stuff going on and I think I really want to be where all the action is. And so I went to London for a couple of weeks and I was like, oh, it's so overwhelming. And then I went to Berlin for a couple of weeks and I was like, it's so relaxed that I'm angry, that I'm like ready to shout at people like, why are you having coffee all day? Just do something. So you felt a bit like a Goldilocks, Berlin too relaxed, London too much going on. Where's my just right? Come on, give me my just right. Oh yeah, so the the theatre school that you went to was a very famous school, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was called École Philippe Gaulier. So a very, very iconic school. So many wonderful performers have trained there. And the man Philippe Gaulier is quite a personality, isn't he? Did you ever have an interaction with him? Yeah, he was my teacher for two years. So, like, every weekday, it was horrible. What a horrible person. I hated him. No, I'm joking. (laughs) He was lovely. He doesn't mince his words, does he? Well, I mean, he's a humorous fellow. What he does is, if you see him outside of the class, like, you arrive to school, and he'll sort of come up to you and he'll be like, Hello, my petit poulain. How are you? How was your weekend? Did you sleep all right? You know, like a concerned father? Okay. Like, just like a gentle, concerned, sweet, you know, fatherly figure. Just so kind. And somehow he'll manage to, like, pull some essential piece of gossip or trash talk out of you about, like, a party that happened or someone who secretly hooked up with someone else. And then you'll get into the classroom and then, like, as people are improvising and doing exercises on stage, he's always giving this commentary where he's like, ah, she's horrible, no? If you're not doing exceptionally well. And I guess like his motivation there is to make sure that you do exceptionally well by telling you you're not doing exceptionally well. You need to change something. And so sometimes he'll like pull these little tidbits of gossip or like trash talk out of his pocket where he's like, (gasps) Oh, but she only likes, you know, having sex with this person in this place. And you're like, how do you know that? Oh, Who told you that? Wow, such power. So I have seen, I've seen a, a video of him yeah. at his school and he's watching some of his students, bless their souls, bearing themselves on stage, being clowns. And he's just heckling them and going, this is shit. And he goes, at one point he goes, money back money back and then everyone chants with him and everybody and the thing is when you're sat in the audience you're like so happy you're like money back money back and then you realize because it's not you up there yeah but you also (laughs) if you as a performer aren't bothering to be engaging enough where you don't feel sort of like i don't know if they liked it like you have to be certain in your work so in a way yes it seems really harsh it seems really cruel but I think afterwards, once you get over the PTSD, <laughs> just kidding, but I think the majority of people will come away and think like, that's what he was trying to say, you know? Yes, it does sound like the most forming experience ever. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool, pretty cool. Do you ever, do you sometimes get his little French voice in your head sometimes when you're performing on stage, you just hear it? like a little devil on your shoulder being like, Hannah, this is shit, what are you doing? They're laughing at you. It's amazing, I I love it. You should pursue this character. You should pursue it 100%. I want to see more. (laughs) I think the character's taken by Philippe. Just call me up in the middle of the night, Hannah, what the fuck are you doing? This is horrible. (laughs) Go back to sleep. 
Um, <laughs> Hannah, you are singing Whitney Houston again in your sleep. It is horrible. <laughs> so you moved to London and you did some pretty, pretty impressive things. A theatre at the Southwark Playhouse featuring in a BBC series. I mean, these are these are landmark UK arts venues. We met at your comedy night, Lost Cabaret. Did you start it with your friend? No, I didn't. I didn't. It was started by the legendary Zuma Puma and Sharni. Zuma Puma and Sharni, who has a last name. But you did run this night very successfully for several years. You embedded yourself in the culture of London, which is incredible. But were you shocked at the expense and the difficulty of making it as an artist? I really, really, really was. I kind of, I really had the impression that, not that I would come here and that people would welcome me with open arms. Obviously, um, because I'd lived in London once before, studying for a degree, and I realized then, so where I'm from in Hungary, when, especially when I was growing up and young, when we would get foreign people, people are so interested in them. They're like, let me take you to like the best restaurant in Budapest or let me take take you to this place. Or if you have like a free weekend, you should go here. And they're just like so interested that someone from the outside would come to this country and they want to show them everything and make sure they have a good time. When you're a foreigner and you arrive in London, they're like, Brexit, go back home. Oh, Brexit. <laughs> oh that's so awful. And it's funny because even the other foreigners, like I feel like after a while you become a Londoner where you just like you see new people and you just sort of like you're like yeah stonewall i don't know you i owe you nothing you can be really funny and then i might have a conversation with you otherwise you go in your corner on the tube go That's so that is so depressingly well observed. you have to yeah. work hard to make friends in london and it's not necessarily true mm. that just because you work in a place or with a group of people you'll be friends with them it is hard but I imagine that some of the good friends you made were through some of the day jobs that you started doing in order to get some cash. Would you like to tell us all about your best ever day job? A job that I've done as a day job that I've actually enjoyed has been working in an escape room because it's just hanging around with lots of really nice people all day and watching people trying to solve a puzzle. There's lots of just really fun chat and nice to hang out with nice people that happens while you're doing this job so that's probably the most fun job I've had do you ever get to do any of the role play yeah yeah so much role play I mean from the moment that the guests enter you're already that's where it starts so it's like a day job but you also kind of get to have fun or just it makes you feel a little bit like you're free because, you know, so many day jobs really stuck doing something that someone else wants you to do in a specific way. But at this place, I guess the people that owned it, they <clears throat> they kind of really want us to put our own mark on things. And that was just a really nice. So what is your persona? What's your favorite kind of persona when you're introducing people to the escape room? I sometimes do like a whole time is money thing. <laughs> That's good. Uh, <laughs> Where I'm like, guys, this is a movie studio. Like, what are you thinking? Come on, let's go. We've got to get this show on the road. We're behind schedule. Get in the room. Solve the mystery. Come on, guys. Time is money. <laughs> um, just, like, try to find ways to make them laugh or be as silly or stupid as possible. Well, you're very um, good at that, making people laugh and being silly. Yeah, I love being silly. 
I just remembered one of the bravest physical comedy performances I saw was by Hannah Winter at Lost Cabaret coming on to introduce a new act and as she approached the stage we realised that the entire back of her trousers was not there so we just saw her wonderful beautiful bare bottom sashaying towards the stage it was bold it was brilliant it was funny it was quite rousing rousing my yes that i remember that night that night i felt like uh we needed to change the energy a little bit so i thought i would just like mix things up but then as i was walking to the stage and i walked like really deliberately slowly i heard someone on your table go oh no oh no i actually (laughs) think i know who that was but i think it was an oh no of like I think it was, oh, no, she is above us all. She is so brave. <laughs> I really think it was that. I, d- I mean, it was admiration. I know the friend who did that, and she really does admire you. So, Have you ever seen anything funny in the escape room? I think the best thing I have ever seen in the escape room is actually really funny. So this couple came in to play the game, absolutely hammered, like so, so, so drunk. It was just the two of them, and... Um, they just kept doing all these things like that didn't make sense. Like they would just sort of search the room, find just a prop that had nothing to do with the mystery and sort of pick it up and be like, oh my God, I know. And then like hold, you know, a pencil to their ear and be like, hello, hello, is this the detective? And then nothing happened. And they would just like look at the thing, throw it on the floor and be like, it, it didn't work. Like as if in all seriousness, they had expected that to like yield some sort of magical answer and they just kept doing stuff like this for an hour but it was so ridiculous like nothing they did made any sense it's like when you see infants or people who are on ecstasy at a party and they're all just sort of like bobbing to music walking up to other people like feeling each other's faces and no one knows what's going on that's what it was like it was so funny oh wow so and were you funny. just trying to intervene and give them clues and be like so guys uh, time is money. <laughs> I tried to be really gentle and um, tried to help them along, but um, I'm not so sure that they made it, if I'm honest. <laughs> Did they just die in there? Are they still there now? They're still there, <laughs> buried under the carpet. We tread on them daily. It's very unfortunate. It's all part of the fun. I'm assuming that you've got a worst day job up your sleeve. So when I first moved to London, I was living with... I think like five or six friends who I really loved. And one of them was like, Hannah, I have this really great agency. Like, it's great because like, you don't have to do anything. You just turn up and you've got the job. And he like, he gave me the address. You know, I called this woman. She said, yeah, come tomorrow. I turned up the next day. Here's a stack of papers, three inches thick. Read through it, sign it, and you're on the books. And we're going to start, you know, giving you work. So I signed up. And for like my first three weeks there, I was covering the breakfast shift at a big hotel chain near Heathrow Airport, which at the time I was living in Hackney, so to get there for 6 a.m. for the breakfast shift, I had to leave my house at like 3.40 in the morning because there's only night buses. So I had to take night buses almost out to Heathrow. And so I was waking up every day at like 3 in the morning or whatever, having to wake up, put on the thing, walk out the door and get the bus. And I would like get there for 6 in the morning and then it was just like this hellish shift where it's, like a really famous hotel brand. So it sounds like it's for people that have like a bit of money or they're on like some corporate, you know, conference or an event. So the pe- all the people that were there, they all just had this sort of attitude, like I'm important and you're worthless. 
but we were like me as someone from an agency and not there as a full-time staffer I was actually getting minimum wage to be treated like crap every day from 6 a.m until like noon and it was so it was like such a dumb job to be doing and I think the second weekend after doing this for a week I had turned into a zombie I didn't really know what I was doing in life anymore it was only a couple of weeks I was there but it was just so distressing this job that like the second weekend I remember being on the way home in the underground at 3 p.m which to me felt like midnight because I was so exhausted and I just burst into tears, like actually burst into sobbing tears. and was just like, what am I doing with my life? And I quit because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I didn't wow. see, there's no point to it. it must have been bad. It. Come on. And it was just two weekends? Two weeks. Or was it the whole weeks. Week? Oh, okay. Weeks. So you did the whole like 14 yeah. days. Wow. I mean, those early starts and then to be treated like scum, that's going to tip you over the edge. Did you get free food? I don't think we were officially... No, we weren't officially allowed free food, which was another thing. Like, I've mostly worked in restaurants and catering alongside of um, performing. And they, whenever it's catered, they just... They always feed you. But this place, they were like, no, you can't eat here. Like, you can bring an apple with you and, like, eat it on your break in the changing room. And so the guys in the kitchen were all Hungarian because that's what my people do. We, we cook for the people. Um... <laughs> And so they discovered that I was also Hungarian. So from then on, they were like, oh, would you like to try these pancakes that I made? No one's having them. Oh, well, that's, yeah, that's a nice little bonus. That's all right. Yeah, it was. And I took home lots of little half-used teeny tiny pots of jam. <laughs> Every cloud. Every cloud has a silver lining. And you've got tiny pots of jam. <laughs> I know. The guys that I was working with, they were just, I guess they'd worked there for such a long time. They were just throwing everything in the bin. And I'm like, guys... That is a jam jar. That's going to be worth something one day. <laughs> Give me that. I'm taking it home. What did you do with the jam jars? Did you use them to collect your tears after you finished the job? <laughs> I really should have. That would be a beautiful art exhibition. Thank you for this idea, Francis. Could you please tell us about your weirdest ever day job? I have a couple of friends who are married and they had just bought a house and so for their housewarming they invited all their friends and they said like feel free to you know as a housewarming gift bring a performance or even if you just want to read like a poem or whatever you want to do and so I went and I did my little old lady sketch and then one of their friends who's a musician was at the party and she was she was like really into it and she was telling me about her grandmother is Hungarian and and she really liked it and she was like yeah I'd love to see more and then like a month or two months later or something I get a text from this friend that had had the housewarming and, and he says you know she'd really love for you to perform the old lady at one of her gigs and I'm like yeah great any excuse to get on a stage me and I didn't really know what the background was or anything I just was like, what's the address? What time is it? He was like, only if, you know, no pressure, if you don't want to do it or if you don't feel like it. But I was like, come on, of course I feel like it. So I went and um, this is in somewhere in West London, like really posh. And it's like a dark street, nothing on it. Just like one lit up gastro pub. I walk up and the lady's like, your name, please. And I'm like, oh, I'm I'm on the list, they know I'm coming in. And she's like, oh, go right ahead then. And just sort of lets me straight in. And I take one step inside and I kind of look to the right. And there is Patricia Arquette. 
Wow. Just stood there. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to perform stupid, idiot, old lady character for Patricia Arquette. And I'm already like starting to get nervous. And I take another step because I'm like, why did I wear my secondhand, you know, crappy dress and my stupid sneakers and my sweater has a stain on it. This is such a bad idea. Um, I take another step forward and I'm like looking around and everyone's incredibly well-dressed, like impeccably well-dressed. And then this waiter steps up to me and he's like, glass of champagne or Negroni? Anyway, the further I got inside, the more I realized this is a fashion party. I can't find my friend anywhere who told me to come. And I'm a bit confused because I'm like really not sure if I'm prepared to perform in front of Patricia Arquette and the fashion world. (laughs) Fair enough. So I call him up and he's like, yeah, come around the side entrance. So I go around the side and then he leads me down into the basement through another entrance. And I'm like, crap, I could have just been at a fashion party with Patricia Arquette and a bunch of models. And instead, I'm going to a basement to watch music. But I went because I said I would. Anyway, so we go down into this basement and it's like a packed basement. There must have been like 500 people there, which in a way is great because the more audience, the better. But it's really like a classic music venue. So, you know, it's sort of really dark and but the speakers are really good and everything. So they say to me, they're like, we actually haven't told the venue that you're part of our act. So what we want you to do is sort of like come on stage after us and sort of like take over the stage even though the manager of the night doesn't know you're going to be doing this and like we're keeping it secret so we're also going to pretend that we don't know you <laughs> and at, at, at this point I'm like mm, is this a good idea so I put on my costume and like as they're finishing they sort of gave me a signal and I went on the stage and I just started doing this number what was the voice like? <laughs> this classic old lady voice so lonely please touch me and people were like into it they were like yes come i will give you a hug little old lady um because the guy like he turned the microphone off and then he turned like everything off then he turned the lights off and then i just wandered into the audience and started hugging people and then the manager of the venue came over and he was like i'm gonna have to ask you to leave and i was like oh so cruel and he was like he was laughing and while through his laughter he was like please leave I don't want to have to eject you and I just looked at him and went okay I just need to get my backpack (laughs) did they ever at any point realise that you had in fact been hired to do this no no (laughs) did you get paid no (laughs) okay so how do you manage to stay creative on the side for like a really big part of my life I felt like I have so much craziness just always happening in my head so many ideas so many things but I think with time I sort of learned to harness it in like even if I'm on the bus just if I feel really inspired or there's just too many thoughts whizzing around I'll either take out my phone and start writing down things or I'll keep a a notebook on me and just Mm. I've actually recently gotten into the habit of writing every morning just whatever comes out So I'm always writing down ideas. My bigger problem is not how I keep creative, but how I ever get any project done ever. That's my big problem. Because the creativity isn't a problem. The millions of ideas are all there. It's more just actually finishing one of them. 
that's a massive problem for me. That is a really good point about creativity not being the problem often, but just actually having the time, mental energy and space and money to actually bring it to fruition. I think it's all of those things, but I think that really often we sort of overlook the idea that you need support like you need an immense amount of support in order to be creative the same way that you do if you're doing a business you know like you don't turn up to work at a restaurant and then you're not expected to like build the tables and the shelving and order the food and cook the food and serve the food and do all the accounting which is what you're expected to do if you're an artist working alone and people never think about the fact that well there has to be a space that is maintained by someone there has to be like working hours there has to be a director there has to be a person that does the marketing there has to be someone like booking a tour or performances whereas if you're Mm -hmm. working on your own that's me that's when I run into problems because I don't have that support so for me to get like an entire show finished and then go and perform it at a festival or at a venue it's like oof it's a lot of work and and it is a lot of money as well because of your time and Do you have any top tips for our listeners for saving money or surviving in the city? Saving money while surviving in the city, for me, looks like cycling everywhere. Cycle everywhere. Make sure you invest in a really good bicycle that you love to ride. Um, And another another thing that uh, really worked well for me at a time and then didn't work was not drinking. I went through this period where I didn't drink alcohol. I would go to the pub or I would go to gigs or go see people perform and I would just have lemon sodas. And I, you save genuinely so much money. A lemon soda is like 50p. If it's a really expensive one, it's a pound. You know, a beer is five pounds and you're having like three beers. Whereas if you're having a lemon soda, you're not like, oh, I'm going to have another one. Oh, I just really want another one. I just really want another one. Because at one point you're like, I've peed enough. I am hydrated. This conversation is either interesting enough to me that I want to stay here or I'm going home. That's fantastic. That's a great piece of advice. But again, won't work for everyone and probably won't work for me. Another, I think another really good tip is when people offer you things, if you're happy to take it, take it. Because I think before I used to kind of really be like, no, all the time. I used to always say no. And then it got to a point where I realized like some of the people that I spend time around, they can just afford way more things than I can because they just earn more money or for whatever reason. So I had to get into this habit where I was like, if I think that they're okay with it and I want to, I don't know, enjoy that experience or whatever it is with them. I think once I opened up my brain in that way, then I started actually getting a lot of free things where just like at a restaurant or a bus ride or this happened to me a lot very obviously I used to work at market and then people would always give you like free fine food stuffs for free you have to accept those that's a very good point because I am I'm the same as well and uh, I find it hard to accept free stuff from people I want to pay my way a lot of the time but a nice thing that a friend once said to me is I'm gonna buy this round of drinks or something and I was like oh no and then he was like consider this my investment in the arts because so I think you have to you have to kind of be like yeah I am an artist I'm struggling and you're not and so I do accept this thank you yeah 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 <laughs> okay so finally Hannah what would be your dream job I would love if we're going absolutely crazy on dreams realistic or unrealistic I would love to have written a tv show and be 
directing it. Any ideas what the show would be based on? Dark comedy. Any titles? God, I'm really putting on the pressure, aren't I? No titles, but serial killers. Oh, very cool. Well, I'm sure you will achieve all of those things and more, especially now that you're moving to Berlin and you're going to be drinking coffee all day. <laughs> yeah, I'll be so energized. I'm going to have really fast dreams. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today on Broken Ambitious and thank you for all of your anecdotes and advice. Thank you for having me.